0: Hello and welcome to another SPAC Insider Podcast, where we bring an independent eye in interviewing the targets of SPAC transactions and their SPAC partners. Biotech firms tend to come onto SPAC's radar when they still have some clinical work to complete to get to an approved medicine or device, but Avertex is ahead of that particular curve. I'm Nick Clayton, and this week my colleague Melina Haddad and I speak with Tim Moran, President and CEO of Avertex, and Ross Happigat, CEO and CFO of BioPlus Acquisition Corp. The two announced a $195 million combination in May. Tim tells us how Averdix's Guardian heart monitoring implant has done in its initial commercial rollout, having already been approved by the FDA and for insurance reimbursements. While Ross explains why being at that stage of the process was important for BioPlus's criteria given the current market conditions, and what further value streams could be unlocked by the Guardian device long term. Take a listen. Okay, so just to start out, Tim, you know, Veritex made some news this morning with the partnership you announced with the Heart and Rhythm Institute of Trinity. How will that be an important step on your continuing efforts to make Guardian systems more available to patients?
1: Yeah, Nick, we were really excited to announce that partnership. And it comes on the heels of another announcement we made just a few weeks back with another very large health system called Advent Health. So our commercial team has done an excellent job getting out into the market, being able to educate cardiologists and electrophysiologists on the benefit of the guardian system. Um, We have the first and only FDA approved class three implantable diagnostic device that can detect heart attacks and in real time alert the patient that they're having an attack in order to get them to care more quickly. And our whole objective now is driving awareness in the market. And these partnerships really serve us well. And they provide a license to hunt, if you will, within these large systems that we can now go to the various hospitals that are part of that system and bring guardian to the physicians and the patients there.
0: And I'm really looking forward to getting into a lot of the specifics there. But just moving it over to Ross, you know, real quick, I'm interested in hearing about your process as well. We see a lot of SPAC deals in biotech, and and often these are targets that are at the earlier clinical stages, but Averdix is in a very different position. So how was the timing and and sort of the stage of development interesting for for you from, from BioPlus's perspective dealing in this case with an approved medical device that's already out there in the market? Well, thanks for that question. Look,
2: you're absolutely correct. It is quite rare to get a company that has really a very, very large market, about $7 billion TAM, complete white space where there is no competition, have the FDA regulatory approval for a class 3 device that went on for about 10 years at 100 different centers with over 900 patients, very, very, broad label by the FDA that essentially applies to almost 90% of heart attack patients on an annual basis. And of course, with a differentiated product, well protected with a number of patents that extend to 2041 and a fantastic reimbursement by the CMS. So those combinations really puts a verdict in a very unique position that this is not about build them and they'll come. This is a product with a need, with a very large population, not just in the U.S., but on a global basis. In the U.S., as I pointed out, it's about a $7 billion complete green space. Overseas, on a global basis, that market is several times that. And we think that this represents a real opportunity for us to build a very successful global multi-billion dollar company.
3: Yeah. And on that note, can you talk a bit more about the Guardian's market fit? With heart disease continuing to be the leading cause of death globally, what are the kinds of patients that Guardian is the best fit for?
1: What's really interesting is, as Ross noted, it's a white space. So we believe that we're building into a new cardiac category. If you think about patients that have had one prior heart attack or myocardial infarction, their ejection fraction if you're, if you're familiar with that phrase, is something that they'll immediately have measured. So ejection fraction is simply how well um, your heart pumps blood each time it beats. Today, if a patient has an MI and their ejection fraction is below 35%, they're eligible to receive an implantable cardiac defibrillator, or an ICD. That's only about 10% of the post-MI patients. So what we're focused with Guardian are patients that have had an MI but their ejection fraction is above 35, but probably less than 60. It's about 90% of the MI patients, post-MI patients each year. And before Guardian, there was really no monitoring that you could send the patient home with that would be with them 24-7 around the clock looking for, you know, the next event to occur. So that's where we're positioning this device. And it really serves two purposes. So from an episodic perspective, obviously for heart attack detection, we're we're notifying the patient in real time, but also because we have a lead that's directly in the patient's heart, we're able to capture a whole host of other cardiac complications. So as a patient's disease progresses over time, we're really providing... providing that longitudinal care, right? So we're giving the physicians a way to track these patients and be able to manage them and monitor them each and every day, something that they've never had before.
3: And so given that Guardian is in some ways a preventative intervention, does that impact your distribution at all in terms of what kinds of facilities and doctors will be offering it?
1: So today we're focused on really from a physician perspective, there's a couple call points. So obviously the cardiologist, right? Oftentimes an interventional cardiologist is really the person that's going to manage that patient on a day-to-day basis they're going to provide referrals for any care that they need at some point they're also implanting the device but more often they're referring their patient to an electrophysiologist who's the other key physician target for our our business um, who are implanting this device what's nice about the product and i was really when i did my diligence about joining and kind of taking my career to a verdicts was We've got this de novo product, a brand new white space that we're building, but the practice of actually implanting the device is very similar to that of a single chamber pacemaker. So there's no big technical hurdles. So this procedure is very simple. We don't change any workflow. And quite frankly, it's a procedure that physicians have been doing for many, many years. So it's the cardiologists and electrophysiologists that are the key physician champions. And then we're selling to both hospitals and ambulatory surgery centers.
0: Right. And you know, Ross was touching upon there for a bit in terms of some of the long tail of work that Averedix has, has done in terms of getting Guardian to this stage. And the company goes back to 2001, you're working on uh, algorithms and building intellectual property around that. Can you just touch a little bit about uh, like what that journey has been like and the trove of IP you have at this point? You're absolutely correct. Is that the secret sauce in this product
2: family, if you would, is really the algorithm, right? Specifically, it's about monitoring shift in ST segment of a patient's uh, cardiogram, and the company has spent more than a decade perfecting and then running a very comprehensive global trial. The clinical trial that was done provided very high level of reliability, ninety-one percent positive predictability value compared to symptoms alone that the patients today rely on to decide that they've had potentially a heart attack and present themselves to the ER. Let's just put it in perspective. Today, from the onset of a heart attack until the patient presents themselves into the hospital for intervention takes over 12 hours, in fact, close to 13 hours. Patients that have the guardian would be alerted to an MI within two minutes of its occurring. And in this very large 900 plus patient study, the average patient showed up under two hours. So it's, think about this thing, two hours compared to almost 13 hours. What's even more important is for every 30 minutes of delay in intervention, mortality rate increases by 7.5%. So getting patients in that quickly has a real impact on patient outcome. What's even more important is about a quarter of our heart attacks are completely asymptomatic, which means they do not have the typical symptoms that we see, perhaps in Hollywood, where you have you know massive uh, chest pain and you call the ambulance. Most patients, 25% of those patients, have a heart attack. They're not even aware that they've had a heart attack. The problem is there's tissue dying in the heart that is impacting that ejection fraction that Tim spoke about. Ability to detect. Then this algorithm confirming that you've had a heart attack and alerting the patient to get intervention has a real impact. And in our trial, we were able, out of 900 patients, there were 42 patients that had silent heart attack that had no knowledge that had had a heart attack and they got intervention. Therefore, the data has been published in peer review articles. And it is really profoundly positive and very, very encouraging. And that is a big, essentially benchmark for cardiologists that are making decisions to rely on this device to help their patients today.
1: Yeah, just a, a piggyback on that, a, a couple other points. So regarding the ejection fraction discussion, because this really resonates with the physicians now that we're out talking about the device. In the study, we looked at the patient's ejection fraction at the time of implant, so at the start of the study. And obviously, it was a randomized control trial, so we had a control a control cohort, and then we had our treatment cohort that had the guardian with the alarming on. For patients that had an MI during the study, when you looked at their initial ejection fraction at the start, both groups, they were about equivalent, about mid-50 percentile upon discharge after an MI, the patients that did not have the benefit of Guardian had about a 20% decline in their ejection fraction, where we preserved patients who had Guardian at about the same percent as they had prior to the implant. So that was really just incredible data. And that goes towards the impact and the chronic nature of what these patients will have to deal with over time. So really, really compelling. The only other piece I would say here Is when you talk about our journey from, you know, kind of day one and the inception by our founders to say, you know, we want to help patients who are dying from heart attacks. Um, At the end of 2021, we received our FDA approval. In early 2022, the company was awarded with uh, reimbursement through CMS, the transitional pass through payment. Um, And that was really the inflection point for the board to say, okay, now is the time to build out the commercial organization and get this product to market. And that's exactly what we've been doing over the last uh, handful of months
0: Great. i really want to get into that stuff too but just continue to talk about the product about guardian you know i feel like because these things are such interesting and technical devices we sometimes i feel like sometimes the discussion that falls by the wayside is some of the basics which is like the size of the thing i mean in this case you know guardian is about the size of a silver dollar so why does that matter when it comes to safety efficacy and ultimately servicing those devices over the long term
1: yeah. You know, sometimes the best solutions are, are straight, pretty straightforward and, and simple. I mean, obviously there, a lot goes into having an implantable class three device and, you know, both the regulatory and clinical work that is required to get it approved. But to your point, Nick, it's very similar in size and footprint to a pacemaker, right? So silver dollar size, as I said, we have a single lead that goes in the heart. As a matter of fact, we've chosen to be agnostic to the lead that the physician wants to use. So they can use whatever lead they've been using for pacemakers and other implantable device in the past they're most comfortable with. Once they implant that lead, they're just connecting to our small guardian implant. And then it's the algorithm. So it's really a software solution um, that runs on top of this. But it's a really straightforward procedure, as we said it roughly 30 minutes sometimes even even less than that and i think that's the piece that people are so surprised by they they can have something that now gives them confidence allows them to get back to their normal you know, activities, maybe it's exercise, drive, driving on a road trip where after they had an MI, they were worried, is that, am I going to have the next attack? And, you know, they, they tend to not want to get back into the things they enjoyed. And we're giving them peace of mind and really reducing that fear and anxiety. And it's done on an outpatient basis, as I said, in about 30 minutes. From a patient's
2: perspective, a study survey that was done post the study with patients that had this in their chest for the duration of the trial. It's really interesting. There is a patient perspective and there is the loved ones to the patient, right? That sense of comfort that my spouse my uh, father, my uh, you know, grandfather or grandmother actually has this. And what's really important is the pipeline of products that are in development and are going to the FDA very shortly for approval, latter part of 2024 timeframe uh, or early 2025, is that all of this data is going to be in the cloud, which means it now is able to be subject to two-way interrogation and communication. As that occurs, instantly that data is available, not just to the cardiologist, but also to the loved ones. And that allows us to create an entire ecosystem of around-the-clock care, but also generate additional revenues from the product, not just at the time of sale where we have very healthy margins, but actually have a recurring revenue and have a subscription base. That really is the direction that we need to go, and I think being the unique player with such long-term protection, allows us to create a meaningful company around that.
3: Right. And just going off of that, I see from your presentation that you are looking at generating revenue already this year. So how have your efforts been going on the production side in terms of meeting the demand that you are seeing in the market?
1: Yeah, great question. So what I'll tell you is the company has done a really nice job with our manufacturing partners and managing The supply chain that we all know over the last several years, of course, during COVID became very strained. We're uh, sitting with the appropriate amount of inventory to make sure that, you know, of course, we can supply our products. Um, We have some flexibility, right? If the ramp goes even faster than expected. So, from a stock uh, position, I'm very, very comfortable. I'll tell you that from a commercial standpoint, back in 2022, right after the reimbursement uh, was achieved, uh, the company did a very controlled commercial launch, as you typically would do, um, about five or six salespeople. And they were able to put in about 100 implants in that first call at 10 or 11 months, which was great, you know, validation. Since then, we've more than doubled the number of implants that were done in all of 2022. And that's through a team that we're, you know, building as we go, right? So we've added new reps in the first quarter, we continue to add new salespeople in the second quarter. And what we're finding is, because we're focused mainly on reps that have a proven track record in cardiology and implantables, right? So typically anywhere between eight and 10 plus years of experience, but we're finding folks that have sold ICDs or pacemakers or some of the other technologies wanting to be part of this story, wanting to build out this category because they've seen it before, you know, and maybe they had been part of it when the outset of implantable uh, defibrillators. So we've really had the pick of the litter with great talent. And as you know, at the end of the day, you can have a great technology, but it all comes down to the team that makes the difference. And We've been really pleased with their results to date, both in the field and in-house from an operations perspective.
3: And then beyond the U.S. market, you've identified the EU, Israel, and Australia, Asia as your next big markets to get into. So how exactly are you approaching those market entries and what progress have you made with that so far?
1: When you build a business, oftentimes a device like this, right, the U.S. is going to be your your key initial market where you're going to put full-time employees' resources on the street from a commercialization perspective. What we think is best initially here is to build an OUS strategy that is very focused on areas that we think we can win, where we can drive revenue early, and where we can collaborate with partners that have the local know-how and relationships to get it up and running quickly. So, there's two um, agreements that we've already signed. One is in Asia Pacific, as you mentioned, with a key distributor there. And we're working through Pacific country regulatory approvals. And we anticipate that'll start to generate revenue in 2024. And then we most recently, at the beginning of this year, we signed a distribution arrangement in the United Arab Emirates, which we think is a really, really compelling market for this technology. And again, these are partners that are doing kind of all of the upfront work to establish not only kind of the go-to-market strategy, but all the regulatory path and clinical work that may be needed to get the approval. We set up with a transfer price, uh, right? So they're bringing the product in, you know, they make commitments back to us in terms of volumes, and then we support them, you know, just as we would with a local salesperson here in the U.S., We support them with materials and uh, selling tools and all the things to help them be successful. But we think that model is a cash-efficient approach and will give us some really nice returns.
2: I would add just two quick comments. One, our distribution partnership in Middle East, North Africa represents a region of about 150 million people. So from a patient population point of view, it's about 50% of the U.S. market. Secondly, because of the high rate of smoking, as well as high rate of diabetes. These are two core morbidities that actually preferentially favor the use of uh, the Guardian. The partnership there is essentially buying into the value prop where all of the market development, including the regulatory streamlining, is a part of the commitment that's been made. An ability to then take advantage of the next generation product, which is remote patient monitoring or at-home monitoring because of the population distribution in the region, is really designed as a flagship demonstration, OUS, for that market. As Tim said, transfer pricing is done such that it is really very attractive and we have the ability to deploy. In the meantime, in Asia fact, the company has already received a number of approvals. The product is not approved in Singapore. It's approved in Malaysia, in Thailand. Those applications are pending in Japan, in uh, Australia, as well as in Hong Kong, which is a proxy for the China market. So again, it, typically, companies tend to shy away from going OUS because you have to put boots on the ground, but that's not the way we're doing it. We are picking carefully our partners. They are doing all the upfront market development. We are providing the support, if you would, and the transfer pricing is done such that it's incremental and not significantly taxing in terms of the ongoing uh, recurring expenses on our end. So we're very, very excited about that.
0: Great, and and just looking at the deal itself, you know, Tim, you mentioned that getting those first reimbursements after regulatory approval was sort of the kind of the big aha moment of we're ready to really jump out there. So why why was that such an important prerequisite in your mind in terms of readiness for the public markets? And I guess why was the SPAC route the the right way to go for you? So
1: listen, having been in medical device commercialization for 25 plus years, I've certainly been in position where you had a great technology and you were waiting for an FDA approval, right? Before you could go and truly drive uh, drive penetration in the market, or you had FDA approval, but you didn't have reimbursement. And unfortunately, oftentimes great technologies, if they're not reimbursed, um, you have a very difficult time driving uptake in the market, right? Um, these hospitals, ASCs, they're under a lot of pressure. You know, to do things that uh, may not be profitable becomes hard. So when I saw an opportunity to be able to lead an organization that had this incredible technology, one of a kind, but also had reimbursement in place, I thought that, you know, this really is a commercial execution story, right? You have all these typical challenges already behind you. Now it's about getting the right people who have the network and relationships um, yes. doing it the right way, building it the right way. and you can really build a large business. so I, I agree with uh, you know Ross and the board's assessment that that really was the catalyst to say, okay, now now is time to build. This out and put the right number of commercial uh, feet on the street. From a SPAC perspective, You know when you have first move advantage and there's no competition, we believe getting to the public markets will allow us to bring the capital in to really fund our growth um, and gives us optionality. As we all know, when you're public, you know gives you some leverage and some, some various choices that you can make to fund the business. But I think what's more important there is the SPAC that we chose. So for us, we were looking for a partner that obviously had the capital markets knowledge to help us get through the transaction process, but more importantly, that had the right talent that was part of the team um, who would advise us. So once we got through the transaction, we can really truly drive towards this becoming a multi-billion-dollar business, and we found that in BIOS. Obviously, Ross, as as we uh, mentioned earlier, has had you know really a storied background. But there's about seven or eight other colleagues of his uh, that he's worked with in the past that sit on the BIOS board and have been invaluable to us as we've been through this process and, you know, building our business. And Ross, maybe I'll defer to you on just a little bit more color about that crew. But it's it's really, really an important part of our story.
2: Look, when companies have early commercialization execution, it's all about for them tapping the market. But when you're in a public arena. You really need to have a few basics, right? You need a team that knows how to plan and execute in a public setting. And number two, real familiarity with the capital market, not just in the US, but on a global basis. And it's really that unique combination that we had at the Vertex under Tim's leadership, having built and having run the global vascular therapeutics business at Medtronic for a number of years, about a billion and a half dollar business. But on the SPAC side, a hand-selected group of life science professionals that are represented by BIOS, backed by real savvy public market executives such as Steve Fletcher and Alex Few, a word about the group, Explorer, which is the sponsor of BIOS, is a serial SPAC sponsor. We've raised $2.5 billion. The two of these SPACs that have been done rank among the best post-business combination through the transaction, during a time when redemptions were very high, they had zero redemption. So this is a group of top investors that have come in, they've bought into the value prop, and they've made a lot of money. Those same investors have invested in BioPlus. And executives in BioPlus and their colleagues of mine, we have built 41 life science companies. We have generated about $40 billion worth of shareholder value, and we're responsible cumulatively for about $11 billion per year worth of annual product revenues. These are folks, all ends of the spectrum, from regulatory, from operations, from public companies, from Fortune 10 board members across the board. So these are not a group of people that say, let's go find a target and combine with. This is about a nation-building exercise that if you take a first-mover advantage in a global massive market, what are the tools that you need? The tools you need is groups surrounding the management that can help the management be in a support role to the management and help to create a multi-billion-dollar enterprise. And that's really what excites the BioPlus side as well as their Vertex board and the key shareholders about this combination that we believe is going to yield substantial, substantial return for the shareholders.
0: Yeah. And you know, it's interesting because, you know, I know Ross, you have some deep familiarity with the verdicts for some time, but BioPlus also did IPO in December, 2021. And we've seen the market change quite a bit over that period of time. And so just with the, you know, the broader market conditions that are out there, some of the macro factors that are there, did that impact your search criteria at all? Did it, I guess, reinforce at all some of your interest in, in doing this transaction? What was that sort of process like? Yeah, that's a great
2: question, actually. You're right. The world has changed. There's quite a bit of difference. Just to put it in context, when we did the IPO back then, end of uh, 2021 timeframe, the IPO was substantially, substantially oversubscribed, substantially uh, more than 12 times oversubscribed. Having said that, the world has changed, as you pointed out. And bottom line is the selection criteria really needed to have a few key features one we had to be in a space that represented on a global basis north of 10 billion dollars worth of time number two it had to have a differentiated technology that would give it not just first mover advantage but a sustainable benefit in a marketplace where you could not only build the business but deny competitors because this is such a highly competitive area it had to have a leadership team that had been around the block understood how to envision how to plan, how to execute, and how to really navigate a global uh, landscape, if you will. It had to have the regulatory wind behind it in a very broad label. And quite frankly, as Tim said earlier, reimbursement, reimbursement, reimbursement. If you don't have reimbursement, you're just building some future NPV value, and you're telling the investors, just believe it, it's going to come. In our case, we had to have proven reimbursement And you could actually build the model and be supporting a predictive growth trajectory. We found that in a verdict. And there's no question that assessment has proven to be right. Because one key thing that I just want to emphasize, which was embedded in what Tim said, whereas Tim's team has only been in the seat for a few months, the current approved pipeline for the product implant is at over 220 sites in the US. We've only talked about a couple of approvals. We have over 45 implant sites, but well over 200 sites that are in the pipeline, and we're going to be bringing them bring them online before the end of the uh, middle of next year. So this is a global play, but certainly within the U.S., where you have all the elements, we believe we can build a substantial publicly traded entity.
0: And carrying that forward, you know, we've seen the pipe market has gotten a lot tighter. You know, obviously since especially Bioplus's uh, IPO, but it was something you mentioned in your uh, announcement materials that that putting together a pipe is something you plan to pursue. Just how is that going, and do you have any thoughts at all on what some of the you know, the alternative structures we've seen become a little more common in terms of forward purchase agreements or OTC equity purchase agreements, and some of those other things that are you know different from a pipe, different fundraising opportunities. Do you have any thoughts on those in general as well? just share with you
2: at a high level, as you may know, we're in the middle of uh, that fundraising campaign. What I commented earlier, though, is that the top 25 investors in BioPlus have that history of investing into our other SPACs and there's been good outcome there. So we have really the benefit of the test of time. Number two, it is about picking the company and pricing it appropriately. So no matter what structure you're using, you're offering investors today fair value. This transaction is valued at about 2.6 times 25 revenues and compared to its comps, that's valued at a substantial discount to them, as much as half. Therefore, there's plenty of room for the upside. Number three, there is always a trade-off between existing trust investors that are already in the trust, deciding to stay in this transaction. And we believe this is a very fair valuation, a very fair scheme going forward. And pipe investors that basically are looking for an entry point under a different, shall we say, parallel structure. What we're putting a lot of energy in is to make sure that adopting one plan does not discourage what what happens to a lot of specs. A lot of specs say, forget about the money in the trust. We're going to go do a pipe. And the way they structure the pipe actually discourages trust investors to stay in the trust. Because of the journey that the team has had, because of the experience, because of the familiarity in this stock uh, and a capital market, we believe we'll end up in a combination that appropriately values the enterprise, rewards existing investors in the trust, and encourages investors in a pipe in a way that is more of a democratic distribution of value rather than a preferential naturally, we could do more draconian types. But, you know, companies in desperate position resort to desperate measures. That is not the case with the verdicts. That is not the case with buyers.
3: Right. And just diving into the deal a bit further, can you discuss how you plan to use the proceeds from this transaction? How much do you expect to use for the sales rollout? And do you have any new products that you're looking at getting approved in the near term?
1: As you'd imagine, a large portion of the of the proceeds will go towards commercialization and growth, right? And we're already starting that process. We've we've built, as I mentioned earlier, the initial te- team out. Um, but there's more certainly that we'd like to do, both in the U.S. and OUS, so we we can put some fuel on the fire with that funding. Um, but from an R and D perspective, yes, we absolutely, Marlena, will continue to. Invest in our product roadmap. So <clears throat> I think Ross alluded to this earlier, but the next product in our pipeline after Guardian is Guardian Plus, and that is the innovation that will have everything that we've discussed today but cloud connectivity so we intend to have that to the fda in 2024 the first half of 2024 and begin to commercialize it you know upon approval end of 2024 early 2025. a lot of that work is done as you'd imagine being prepared to to submit but that is uh there's some of the funding will go there and then we think over time just staying within our core portfolio there's things we can do to expand the number of patients and really physicians that we can get this to. So you think of things like a subcutaneous version, right? So now you don't have a lead in the heart, you have a sub-Q setup of the device. And we've already done some work there. We have patents granted in that area. And there's, uh, you know, early foundation setting for that. So we have a very clear roadmap off the core technology. And then I think over time, you know, there's areas for us to play kind of up and down the care continuum for these types of cardiac patients. But right now, we're really focused, obviously, on the initial commercialization.
3: And then looking at your revenue mix overall, how does it break down in terms of selling hardware, generating revenue from visits and maintenance? And how do you expect that to change over time with the new models?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So over the next three years, what we're projecting, um, first of all, from a geographic perspective, is about two thirds of our revenue will come from the United States, about a third from OUS, at least in today's model. That is all driven through implant uh, revenue, right? But as Ross mentioned, you know, we really think unlocking the value of recurring revenue on top of that will really change our trajectory, both in the amount of revenue we can drive the durability of that revenue but also really the multiple on the business right and we haven't put that in our three year projections so although we'll likely have the guardian with the cloud which would enable the recurring revenue stream in 2025 we have been conservative with our projections you know how things go right um you don't want to overstate where you'll be but we think that's upside in our model um, and i think over time you know you'll see that recurring revenue will play and a, an even bigger role in the overall mix. But today, over a three-year look, we're, we're basing it all on just the implant sales.
3: Right, and then, so as you continue to enter new markets and grow revenues overall, what are going to be the key factors for you in terms of improving margin and getting to EBITDA positivity?
1: Yeah, so I think our focus today won't change in that regard. So we have to run an operationally efficient business Right. So we as a small company, what I love about, you know, I came up in a big company, right. Multi-billion dollar company. When you switch to the earlier stage companies, you really learn the importance of scrutinizing, you know, every every penny that you spend. Right. Because, you know, every day matters, matters. Every dollar matters. Having that mindset, I, I think, is the differentiator and will benefit us over time as well. So we'll always have a business case done when we talk about a new market, you know, outside the U.S., We want to look at that market, we want to look at the patient profile, we want to look at the reimbursement landscape, who the potential partners would be, and what truly the return on investment both for our company and our shareholders will be. So we're not going to deviate from that kind of thoughtful, strategic approach in in really anything that we do.
0: Great. And kind of continue on that point as well, I mean, just sort of what do you think for a company like yours, what do you see as some of the best ways of leveraging public capital to keep funding your strategies? I mean, do you see some M&A opportunity out there? Do you see there being a potential to have, I guess, public equity at play in some of your distribution relationships or strategic relationships throughout the market? What are some of the, some of the opportunities you're thinking about there?
1: So I think from a traditional perspective, you know, it's it's early, right? So to talk about an M&A strategy, um, I think we have a lot of interest from the big players in the market because of where we're playing in this valuable cardiac space. And also about our technology, we're really driving, we're like an enabler, if you will, of other technologies. Because we're providing all this diagnostic data to the physician, um, we'll detect atrial fibrillation. The physician can then bring that patient in, determine if they need to do an intervention, and maybe they're going to do an ablation, right? So the companies that are in that space, they like our technology because it's driving more procedures to them. Right, so I think we're getting a lot of um, awareness from the big players in the market. So that's one thing that you know over time we'll have to you know think about, and we'll continue to um, build that those relationships. But from us being acquisitive, I do think that there's an opportunity. As I was saying earlier, is to kind of play up and down the care continuum from an acuity perspective. So think of us as the gold standard, lead in the heart. We're the only ones to be able to monitor ST segment shifts with such high fidelity and precision that we got the FDA approval and we can detect a heart attack and a silent heart attack. But there's a whole host of other products that are really invaluable and important that, you know, maybe a patch type technology that is more episodic, right? Not something that someone's going to wear for the rest of their life. But you could see that potentially being a natural expansion into our portfolio over time. So those are things, Nick, that some of the things that we think about and contemplate. Um, but as i said you know my job today is to make sure that the company stays very focused on executing the initial plan which will enable those opportunities over time
2: the only thing i would add is look we're looking at a massive TAM with that first mover advantage and a really truly a differentiated product with very very healthy margin rapid adoption easy adoption of the value proposition and very very broad list of cardiologists that are implanting this. Increasing patient awareness where the patients are beginning to ask for the guardian. So it's creating that push-pull strategy where we believe we can build a multi-billion dollar company. What I've found companies that intend to grow through acquisition is where there might be some doubt about the size of their market, ability to execute, or quite frankly, if they don't have the full solution in their portfolio. In our case, we do. It doesn't mean if there are opportunistic chances down there that complements and/or allows us access to particular markets, for example, we would not consider it. But that is not a part of the core plan. We think we can build a very robust, very profitable multi-billion-dollar enterprise because we have all the pieces. And that's really the takeaway from uh, you know the, the the comments that Tim and I have shared with you.
3: Definitely. And then, so just going off of that, uh, given how massive the market for heart treatment is, I'm interested to hear what you see as the most exciting innovation now emerging in this field in general and with Avertix specifically.
1: Listen, I won't, I won't comment necessarily on a specific technology, but I think we all see the artificial intelligence, the machine learning Um, Really this, uh, as it's referred to as kind of this intersection between device and technology. What I love about our product is, uh, and I said this earlier, is we're providing really two, two things. We're providing the immediate notification that an episode is happening, something very impactful, and we're reducing that time to get the patient to care. But we're also serving as a lifetime monitor, right? So it's giving patients this comfort now that they can take part in their own care, you know, and and if you look at literature, you know, patient outcomes are often better when the patient gets involved in their own care, but also providing physicians with the data that they need to provide better care and outcomes. One of the things, Marlena, that we created as a tagline here that we all take very, very seriously, talk about being patient-centric. We have a tagline now that says, keeping families together, about the guardian, And that's really important to us because, you know, if you talk to a patient that has had a heart attack, it's probably one of the most impactful medical events that they can go through. And for that patient, um, the uncertainty and fear, but really for the patient's family, as as Ross was alluding to, and we can play a a huge impact there. So we're pretty excited about, you know, where we fit in the in the new technology landscape. And it's really kind of an incredible time to be in in medical technology and, and innovation.
2: It's a lot of talk about artificial intelligence and machine learning, and really what we talk about algorithm, but really it's the uniqueness of the algorithm that's key, right? A device that's passively listening for the entirety of its implant life, but the most critical thing is this is changing the baseline for each patient as the patient's cardiovascular conditions change. This is really important. It's not one size. It's not like your alarm system every time the door opens. You know, patients, these are progressing patients, right? Which means they have a changing cardiovascular profile or, you know, essentially heart health. The fundamental smart features of this device is that the machine learning continuously changes the baseline and customizes what is an alarm for each individual patient. That is unique and that is really at the heart of this unique capability that we call the Guardian.